Right, Philippians 2, we'll read down to verse 11. In imitating Christ's humility, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, being the, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. I think I'll put my glasses on. Some mornings. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider nothing better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, it's great to be together and to... Uh, think what God teaches us in the scriptures together. We just read from Philippians 2 and we're doing something slightly different this week to uh, what I think you normally do. Stephen has asked me to uh, preach a doctrinal sermon which means I'm going to be drawing on lots of things we learn from across the scriptures rather than going through a passage uh, in and of itself. Having said that I'm going to come to Philippians 2 at the end and my great hope is that Having thought through the doctrine of the incarnation, our eyes will be more opened to the richness and the depth of what we read in the scriptures, including in passages like Philippians 2. When we think about the incarnation, I guess we all know that this is a central and unique claim of the Christian faith. Now, it's central, that is, who Jesus is, is at the very heart of what we believe. And it's unique. There is no other religion or worldview that claims anything quite like this. It's a, a unique, central claim of the Christian faith. In fact, we could say, if you deny the incarnation of Jesus, then you really are falling outside mainstream Orthodox Christianity you're not holding to basic Christian doctrine. What do we mean by incarnation? It's a kind of technical word, isn't it? You don't use that most days in your day-to-day life. 
Incarnation is a theological word which uh, is used to capture the fact that the second person of the Trinity, we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity entered into the human race, took on human flesh, became human, while at no point giving up his divinity. That is, at the same time, he became both God and man. Two natures, one person. It's an amazing kind of idea, isn't it? And just before we plumb into uh, the implications of that, what it means and, and, and some of the ways that plays out in other beliefs of our faith, I guess the first thing to ask is, or to be sure of, is the fact that it does make a difference. That is, there are lots of things that we believe in our lives. We believe them because they're true. But they don't really make a great deal of difference to anything. So, for example, uh, I believe personally, you might not, but I believe that Vladivostok is the easternmost significant population centre in Russia. I believe that. I really do. What difference does it make to my life? Zero. There are a lot of things like that, aren't there? A lot of things we believe that are true and we hold to them don't really change anything much for us. And so here's the question. What difference does the incarnation make? Does it make any difference, really? Is it just something we believe because it's just part of the things that Christians believe? What would it matter if there was no incarnation in the way I've described? If the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, didn't take on flesh and be at the same time fully God and fully human? Would anything fall apart? Could we still have a functional Christian faith? Or would it all completely collapse at that point? Well, it shouldn't surprise you uh, to hear me say that I think it is integral and central and everything would fall apart if we didn't hold that belief. And so today I'm going to take the chance, as I've said, to think about uh, why and how. And and hopefully that will be helpful for us as we go on reading the scriptures and reading about Jesus in our devotional lives and at church. Four big points I want to make. Uh, And they kind of fit into the the box, the boxes that you should have in the um, outline you've got. So in your um, news sheet on the inside page, there's a a grid, a table. And it has on it uh, Jesus as a man or as a humanity and divinity, man and God. And then it has death and resurrection. So we all know the great story of Jesus culminates in his death and his resurrection. Uh, So I thought it would be worth asking... What difference does Jesus' incarnation make to his death and resurrection? And perhaps a good way of thinking about that is to splitting it up. What difference does the humanity of Jesus make to his death? What difference does the humanity of Jesus make to his resurrection? What does the divinity of Jesus say to his death? What does the divinity of Jesus say to his resurrection? And I think if we do that, if we have a look at the death and resurrection of Jesus and Jesus in his humanity and his divinity, and we see that those things are actually critical, we'll realize that if you get rid of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel collapses. We have no death or resurrection of Jesus that's worth knowing about or trusting in. So I'll have four headings. I'll have the cruciality of Jesus' humanity in his death, the cruciality of Jesus' humanity in his resurrection, the cruciality of Jesus' divinity in his death, the cruciality of Jesus' divinity in his resurrection. And if you want to colour in the squares as I go... Uh, That might be a way to think about it. 
Before we get to that, though, I just want to make a couple of uh, preliminary points that might be useful. The first thing uh, to note is that the incarnation is not primarily something that uh, Jesus has done to show us what Christian living and ministry might look like. Now, let me just clarify what I mean there. Uh, a number of people will say the incarnation shows us who we need to be as Christians and what Christian ministry needs to look like. That is, we need to be in the world, uh, not of the world, just like Jesus was. Uh, that is, Jesus came, the second person of the Trinity, to dwell in a particular place, in a particular culture, at a particular time, uh, and he lived in that particular place and time and culture with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He, he took up life in all of its messiness and lived it. And therefore, some people say, the incarnation is a model for us of how we should live and what Christian ministry should look like. Now, there's a level at which, yes, there's a truth in that. There's a truth in that. And uh, certainly, God doesn't want Christians to be cloistered away and to live in their little bunkers or ghettos. Uh, Neither ought we mix with the world so much that we lose our distinct Christian identity uh, and capitulate to everything that the world holds dear, letting go of what God holds close. But that is not the primary lesson of the Incarnation. That might be one of the things, but it's not the primary thing. Uh, A second thing I need to make, just again by way of preliminaries, is to say, uh, while I'm dividing things up this way, and I've given you this grid and I've talked about Jesus in his divinity and his humanity, uh, it can be unhelpful because it can lead us down this false way of thinking that says we can divide Jesus into his godly bits and his manly bits or his godly actions and his manly actions. And that's profoundly, profoundly unhelpful. Uh, As if to say, when Jesus did this, that was him being God. Like when he did a miracle, that was him being God. But when Jesus did this, that was him being a human, like when he was tired. That's profoundly unhelpful. That is, the divinity and humanity of Jesus are inseparable. And what we'll see, in fact, I think, is... The profound, profound truth that when Jesus weeps and cries, that's his divinity on display as well as his humanity. And when Jesus performs an incredible miracle, that's him showing what true humanity is all about as well as his divinity. So it would be very unhelpful to divide those things, even though for the purposes of what we're talking about today, I'm just doing that with regards to his death and resurrection to highlight the significance of of his incarnation. Okay. What we see, of course, in the incarnation then, it's important, just rolling on from that point I made, we see what God is like, really, don't we? If in performing a miracle, Jesus is showing us true humanity, and if weeping and and getting dirty and tired and, and feeling grief is true divinity, the incarnation is revelatory, It shows us something of the true nature of ourselves and it shows us something of the true nature of God. The incarnation is revelatory. That's a really important point that we should say. And we read this as we go through the Bible in lots of places, don't we? The beginning of John's Gospel. No one's ever seen God. It's God the only Son who's made him known. It's revelatory. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. What about in John 14? After Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life and all this, Philip says to him, Uh, Lord, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. That is, you talk about all these things, Jesus, but at the end of the day, we just want to know the Father. Just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus' response is, 
Philip, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know me? He's revelatory. In the incarnation of Jesus, we see God and we see true humanity. We can know God somewhat apart from Jesus through his creation, uh, through uh, his laws, but we can't see him face to face as we do in Jesus. So a great thing again for us to think about just by way of beginnings is if you want to know God, if you're a Christian believer and you want to know God better, if you're not a Christian and you want to know God, the message of the incarnation is look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who shows us the Father. So let's move now to think about our four points. Let's think about how important the incarnation is for these key moments in the Christian story, the death and resurrection of Jesus. At the beginning, let's think about the cruciality of Jesus' humanity in his death. That is saying, why is it important that Jesus is a real human being in his death? Why does that matter? Why does Jesus have to be in flesh, human being in his death? We know it's a central truth of the Christian faith that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that his death in our place is what wins us peace with God as the price for our transgression is paid. By the way, if you don't know that, that's a critical thing to know. That's a really vital thing to know. And I'd encourage you, I'll put Stephen on the spot and say, to ask him to take you out for a cup of coffee to talk more about that because that's something you really need to know. But if you do know that, that a central truth of the Christian faith is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Why is his humanity important to that? Two reasons I want to give you briefly. And the first is uh, simply that if the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Father, had not taken on human flesh, then of course he wouldn't have been able to die for our sins because God cannot die. So just very much to make it possible to die, Jesus had to come in the flesh, had to take on humanity, had to take on mortality. It would be impossible to have Jesus die for our sins if he were not mortal human being. Hence the first very simple reason, the incarnation is important because if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he couldn't have died for us. The second reason is that In his death on the cross, what Jesus is doing is dying as a one-for-one substitute exchange for sinners. Christ died for sinners, we learn in Romans chapter 5. In the Old Testament, there was a system where the blood of bulls and goats and various animals could be given in sacrifice as a way of covering over sin as paying the price for sin. But the problem is, and even the Old Testament says this, it never fully, finally, really worked. The book of Hebrews is very strong on this point as well. The blood of goats and bulls and calves could never really pay the price for sin. And the reason was because those animals are not a proper substitute. That is, there is no bull that lives on this planet that is a fitting substitute for you. There is no goat that God looks at and goes, I pretty much consider that to be the equivalent of you. No. The only fitting substitute for a human being 
is a human being. So at the end of the day, there was a system in place to help us learn about sacrifice and as a way of expressing faith in the Old Testament. But there was no direct substitute ever made for human sins, for sinners, until the Lord Jesus came as a man, a human being, and died in our place. A proper, fitting, one-to-one substitute, humanity for humanity. Had Jesus not come in the flesh, then he wouldn't have been able to be a fitting substitute for our sins. So, recapping, why is Jesus' humanity crucial for his death? He needed to be human to die, because otherwise he couldn't die. And he needed to be human because the sacrificial atonement that was made in his death required a human to take the place of humanity. And so he did it. Okay, second point. The cruciality of Jesus' humanity in his resurrection. Why is it important that Jesus rose from the dead as a human being? Why does that matter? Why is that important? It's another critical and central claim of the Christian faith that on the third day Jesus rose from the dead, Easter Sunday, that he lives, that he's risen, he's alive, death couldn't hold him down. Why did he have to rise as a human? The reason is that he rises as the first fruits of the resurrection. That is a language that you find in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, but drawn from the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. The idea of a first fruits, that is a pioneer, that is the one who comes before the rest. Very, it's, a, it's an agricultural metaphor, isn't it? When you wonder if you're going to have a crop of whatever you're growing, wheat or corn or plums in your backyard, you wait and you wait and you wait, and then you find the first one and you take it inside and say, look, the tree is fruiting. And the fact that you have the first one indicates that the harvest is coming, that the tree is fruitful, that you're going to get a crop. And Jesus is put forward as the first fruits of all those who will rise from the dead. That is to say, he is the pioneer for humanity's life after death. That is to say, you want to know what's going to happen to you as a follower of Jesus after you die? Well, look at Jesus. He rose from the dead. He led the way into new life. He pioneered life after death for human beings. If that's what you want, then that's who you need to follow. And of course, if Jesus didn't really rise as a human being, then Christians have no real hope. Then we say, well, God rose from the dead. That's great. But we don't know if humans rise from the dead because if Jesus wasn't human, then we've, we've got no one who's a forerunner. We've got no evidence that that can happen. But he was a human being and he did rise from the dead. And he is the pioneer for all of us who will rise on the last day. So as human beings, we have great confidence that there is a resurrection because Jesus, the human being, has started the great resurrection in his own. So, the cruciality of Jesus' humanity to his resurrection is that he shows, pioneers, models, leads the way to life after death for all us other human beings, giving us confidence and a clear pathway to where we're going in eternity. So, 
Hopefully I've said enough to convince you that Jesus' humanity is critical to his death and that his humanity is critical to his resurrection. What about his divinity? What about his divinity? The cruciality of Jesus' divinity in his death. Well, uh, that's our next heading and your next box to fill in if you're doing that. Why is it crucial that it was God who died on the cross? If you have a man dying on the cross, uh, being a fitting substitute one for one, why does it matter that he's also God? Why does his divinity matter at this point? And before we get to that, I just want to take a little sidebar and ask the question, did God really die? Did God really die? Uh, some people think, no, this, this actually can't quite be right. Because if God died on the cross, that somehow ruins the Trinity. That destroys the Trinity. The Trinity is an integrated being, Father, Son and Spirit, mutually indwelling. It's, it's not like you can uh, tear one member of the Trinity off and then later on just stick them back on and not much is lost. No, so integrated is the Father, Son and Spirit in one being that if you take one out, the whole thing explodes, falls apart. It's not like plucking a leaf off a three-leaf clover and stitching it back on. It's like trying to remove a, a, a lobe of a balloon. As soon as you take a piece off, the whole thing pops and, and ceases to exist. There is no trinity if there aren't three persons of God. So people said that must mean that God can't die and Jesus didn't really die on the cross. The problem with that, though, is if you say that, then the whole thing is a sham. It's a great bait and switch. You know, It looked like Jesus was God dying on the cross, but at the last minute, somehow that didn't really happen. It looked like that Jesus uh, was God dying for us, but it was sleight of hand, and somehow God didn't really die. The problem in this, of course, is that we misunderstand death. We misunderstand death. You only think the Trinity is violated in the death of Jesus if you think that death means ceasing to exist. But nowhere in the Scriptures do we have that picture, that in death you cease to exist. The picture of death that we have in the scriptures is the tearing apart of body and soul. That's what happens at death. Body and soul are ripped apart. And we can see half of that because when we see death, we know the body doesn't cease to exist. It's still there. It's just soulless, lifeless. The life has left it. That's what death is. The ripping apart of body and soul. And it's horrendous. It's an aberration of what it means to be an integrated being, body and soul together. It's a terrible, terrible aberration of creation that death should rip apart people into their bodies and souls. And your death then is not bad because you will cease to exist. Your death is bad because it will rip apart something that's meant to be together, your body and your soul. In fact, it's so abhorrent, so abhorrent, it demands a resurrection, in fact. And Jesus' death is the same. It's the tearing apart of his body and soul. Tearing apart of his human body. Uh, tearing apart of Jesus from his human body, from his actually human soul as well. And this is how the second person of the Trinity died. He really died, but that doesn't mean he ceased to exist. We still have a Trinity. We just have a Trinity in which one person of the Trinity has been through that abhorrent human experience of having body and soul ripped apart. So if we say the Trinity can experience death in that way after there's been an incarnation in which body has been taken on, then that 
can be ripped apart again. We still need to ask why. Why did the Trinity need to do this? Why did Jesus need to die as God? Why did God need to die? Well, the answer is, if God didn't die on the cross for sins, there's no grace. There's no grace. The whole point, in fact, of Jesus coming to die for our sins is to take our sin from us. That is, that God himself would take on human sin. If Jesus was just a man, just a human being, then what we have is a human being paying the price for human sin. That is, God hasn't taken anything away. He's just made humanity pay for the sins of humanity. But Christ being divine, being God, is God taking human sin away from us. As God, Jesus goes to death for humanity so that humanity doesn't have to pay the price for its own sin. The grace of God is seen in the fact that God himself dies, suffers the ripping apart of body and soul and all that's involved for the sake of human beings so human beings don't have to go through it themselves. So clearly the divinity of God, uh, the divinity of Jesus rather, is critical to his death too. Last one. The cruciality of Jesus' divinity in his resurrection. So we've seen that it's really important that Jesus is fully human in his death and really important that he's fully human in his resurrection. We've seen that it's really important that Jesus is fully God in his death. How is it really important that Jesus is fully God in his resurrection? Why is it necessary for Jesus to be God in his resurrection? Well, the reason is this. If Jesus is not God in his resurrection, then it is not God who is at the head of the human race. It is not God who is our pioneer and leader and the one who we look to and set our hope in. Uh, Jesus defeated death, led the way to eternal life, and we follow him. And if he's not God, then we are human beings following a human and ignoring God in the process. If Jesus is not God rising, uh, pioneering the way into eternity, uh, the one who, as the risen God, demands our worship, then we're worshipping a created being, not the creator. He must be God in his resurrection because otherwise the leader of the human race, the first fruits of the resurrection, the one who we bow down and worship, is not God at all, which would be a terrible idolatry. We would be putting our hope in a human, not in God, and that would be a great sin. So there, I hope, in in short shift, is something of the importance of the Incarnation. Can you see now that the Incarnation is not just a a, a lovely story of how uh, God became vulnerable and became a baby in the person of Jesus in the manger, uh, became small and and, uh, uh, came to show us uh, what he's like? That's all true, of course. But can you see that without Jesus being fully human and fully God, His death on the cross does not have its power. And without him being fully human and fully God, his resurrection does not have its power. Right at the core of the Christian faith, the Easter story, we demand an incarnate God for it all to make sense. If Christ is not incarnate, the whole thing doesn't work.
It's critical. What do you do with this? Well, it's great to know God as he is and great to be able to worship Jesus as he is. And as I said at the beginning, my hope is this also helps us when we read about Jesus in the scriptures to see more of the richness and the depth of what's being presented to us in him as our incarnate Lord. And I hope we see that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. In verses 1 to 5, we have a call for Christians to be Christ-like. Paul is here putting forward the call on Christian believers to be like Jesus. That is, he's calling them to be godly and to be holy and to live as they were made to live. And this is Jesus being the revealer. This is the revelatory value of the incarnation, as we spoke about before. You want to know how to live? Look at Jesus. Just as if you want to know who God is, you need to look at Jesus. But then when we look at Jesus, we see in verses 6 and 7, it was in his very nature. Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. It is God's very nature to take on our burdens. It is God's very nature to show us grace and serve us. What we see in the incarnation of Jesus, according to Philippians, is God in his very nature, not standing on his godliness and therefore refusing to serve and show grace to us, but doing exactly that, taking on humanity that he might appear in human likeness for our sake. And then in verse 8, to die on a cross as a fair substitute and as God in our place, taking our sins away. Therefore, in verse 9, God raised him from the dead and returned him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above all names, made him the one who we should worship forever. That is, he was fully human. He took on humanity in uh, Philippians 2, 6 to 8. But in 9, 10 and 11, we see that he is still the divine one who reigns at the right hand of the Father and at whose name every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hope every time you read about Jesus in the Bible now, you see the the great depth of what's going on in him being fully human and fully God, worthy of all our worship, the one who gave his life for us as a human, a divine human. Does the incarnation matter? The entire gospel hangs on it. We worship the God who became human, who became human to take the penalty for sin away from humanity. And we hope of the one who rose to new life in the way that we will all rise and we worship him as the living God who reigns over all of us even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is the Lord to your glory. We thank you so much that showing us who you were, Jesus did exactly what you do, which is showed grace and kindness, taking on even human flesh so that he might be able to die in our place for our sins.
and rose to new life, showing us what we'll be and where we're going. And so we give you thanks for him and the amazing news of his incarnation that leads to our forgiveness and our hope and most of all leads to greater glory to him. We thank you and we pray in his name. Amen.